Wow, more than you want to know. Sorry about that. It's great to be with you this morning. About 12 years ago, I was visiting Orlando with our family, and we actually visited Orangewood Presbyterian Church, sat up there in the nosebleed seats, and we're just a fly on the wall one Sunday morning. I never had any idea I'd ever preach here or be at RTS. What a great God God is. Uh, And, you know, the bottom line story of my life, like with most of you, is God's grace in Jesus Christ. That's the big story. Um, I'd like to pray for you before we we look at God's word and open it together. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of the church, and we know that you are the one who walks among the lampstands, and you know each church really well. And so my prayer today, as I start, is I pray your blessing upon Orangewood Presbyterian Church and its school for this season of ministry, and upon its teachers, and upon its youth workers, and children's workers, and its pastors, and its elders, and the women who serve here, and the families who influence here. I pray that you'd protect this church and prosper it, and uh, cause it to look upward and outward and to see what you have for it in this new season, and that its light would shine brightly in this urgent hour for many, many years. So, Lord God, what a privilege it is for me to speak into its life. Thank you for your word, the scriptures. Help us to understand this passage and the gift that you've given to us much better. And we ask this in the name of Christ. And everybody said, amen. Amen. This uh, past week, we just ended an election season. And the season was filled with many, many slogans. You know about political slogans. These are short phrases that... uh, uh, every speechwriter wants to find a good nugget. They, they are compressed with meaning that seem to just say it all. And they're used as banners to wave on buttons and on posters and everything else. And if you think back, you could almost chart the history of American politics by looking at the slogans, right? If you go back all the way to 1864 when Lincoln was running for president the second time, one of his slogans was, don't swap horses in the middle of a stream. Right? We wouldn't use that one today. When Herbert Hoover was running for president, uh, he had another homely slogan that struck home with a lot of people. It was, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. That was 1928. Does it ring your bell? Probably not. Uh, Reagan, a little closer to our time. It was, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Some of you can remember that. Some of you weren't even born. Bill Clinton, it's the economy? Stupid. Got it. Good. You're catching on. Palin and and McCain. Drill, baby. All right. Uh, Obama. Yes. Right. And then the other one was change you can believe in. Not as well known, but still pretty, pretty important. Okay. See if you know this. The Tea Party. Can we bankrupt the country? Yes, we can. That was their recent slogan. So they all come back to haunt each other. And then their other one was 11 million and climbing. Now that's a lot of change. Well, anyway, you and I know the power of slogans, right? I mean, we get it. And we probably use them. And uh, they're helpful to us. Well, your current series that your pastor told me about is a series of Reformation slogans from another era that still have power and meaning for the time we live in. And so you started last week, I believe, by looking at the first of five. And uh, we call them the, the soli of the Reformation or the solas of the Reformation. That might be a little foreign language to you. Uh, the alones of the Reformation. And he talked about faith alone, right? 
That's what he told me he'd do. I hope he came through on his promise. And he asked me to speak about Scripture alone, or to use the Latin phrase, sola scriptura. Can you help me with that? Say that with me. Sola scriptura. And it just simply means uh, Scripture alone and talks about the importance of the Bible. The importance of the Bible. I don't know if you know this, but throughout history, um, Christians and Jews have been called people of the book. We have been noted for our devotion to um, the Bible, to God's Word. And uh, there's been this steady conviction throughout the history of the church that the church gets into trouble when it loses the Bible, when it loses the book, it loses the Word, that the church gets lost when it does. In fact, you can extrapolate from that and say Christians get lost when they lose the book, when they lose the Bible. Now, we know from reading Scripture itself that this has happened many times. It happened in Jesus' day. You remember the Pharisees who they believed in the law of God, the Old Testament law, what we call the Old Testament, uh, but they, they kind of lost it. And Jesus said to them at one point in Matthew fifteen six, he says, well, here's what you do. You nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. And it can happen way back then, and it can happen in Luther's day, and it can happen today. And that's what makes this slogan, Sola Scriptura, so incredibly important. You know, I think it's true that in our day, the church is um, at least many churches are in danger of losing the Word, losing the Bible. And that's why we need to come back to this. In fact, some have said that the slogan for our time is sola opinion pola, okay? (laughs) That we live by opinion polls or by what is hot, what is trendy. And so there are other authorities that seem to shape our lives and shape our choices and how we're going to live. For example, uh, some believe in culture alone. And so their phrase would be, their slogan would be, well, everybody's doing it. So if everybody's doing it, I'm going to do it. And that's what motivates them. Other people might put it this way. They would believe in tradition alone. And their uh, motto would be, but we've always done it that way. And that's really more important to them than what's actually in the scriptures. And there's still others that might look to reason. And they, they would have the motto, well, it seems reasonable. And if it's not reasonable, they're not going to come on board. Still other people, their slogan would be uh, emotion alone, okay? Now, their slogan really is, it just feels right. And that's what they live by. And it's what they feel that is the dominant authority in their life. And on and on it goes. And and, uh, so, in the process, the the scriptures kind of slide in importance and get pushed to the side. Now, see, this is what happened in Luther's day. The church lost the scriptures. Well, it didn't really lose them. It's just that they got smothered over by all the traditions and everything else. And the church still on paper believed in the authority of the Bible, but it elevated tradition to the authority of scripture, made them equal and made traditions and the rulings of popes and councils equal. And so what happened was not only were the scriptures not available to people, but they were smothered over and nobody really knew what they said. And along came a man like Luther and Calvin, these reformers that I'm sure Jeff has told you about. And they talked about being reformed by the Word of God. Now, i got to tell you, you're a reformed church, right? Yeah? Okay, I was told you are. I'm present, uh, what's the name of the seminary that I'm at? Reformed Theological Seminary. And we go on about, you know, the importance of uh, the doctrines of grace and uh, the legacy of Calvin and the Puritans and all this rich heritage, which is absolutely wonderful. I'm a church historian. I love that stuff. 
But I sometimes simplify for people that at its very essence, reformed is about being reformed by the Word of God. If you want to know what the Word means, that's what it means. Being reformed by Jesus Christ and His Word. And so you've got this uh, monk, Augustinian monk, Luther, who at 33 uh, tacked up his grievances about what the church was doing on the Wittenberg door. And the Pope muttered, Luther is a drunk German. He'll recant when he's sober. The only problem was... He didn't get sober. At least the Pope didn't think he did. And so the Pope sent a bulletin out and said, you know, if Luther doesn't recant of his positions in 60 days, he's excommunicated from the church. And the, 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 the officials of the church called this council, uh, and it was, a, it was a, a very important church gathering where uh, they, they wanted to really hear Luther out if he would recant. It was an imperial meeting. They met in the, met in the town of Worms, Germany. They called these imperial meetings diets. It is uh, since known to us as the diet of worms, which sounds absolutely terrible, right? But it was really important. And Luther got up and he thought he was going to be asked to explain his writings. And instead they just said, will you recant what you have written? Just one word, revoco. Will you recant? And I don't know if you know his famous reply, but he said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures, or by clear reason. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted, and I am bound to my conscience. It's captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything, since it's neither right nor uh, good to act against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. And with that, Luther said, no, it is scripture that is the supreme authority for the Christian and for the church. It is the norm that norms. If you, that's his way of putting it. It's the standard, the supreme court. It's the final um, say. He said, yes, councils are important. Creeds have a place. Traditions are even okay. But above them, everything must be judged and weighed by Holy Scripture itself. And, of course, that caused a big, uh, big commotion in the church. Now, I got to tell you this, that the reformers, based on what Luther and Calvin did, they had what I call a text plan. So their burden was to point the whole church back to the word of God. They said, look, go back, discover the true gospel and go back and discover how a church should be ordered and go back and discover how a church should worship. All these things go back to the word. And then their other great passion in their text plan was not just to point to God's text, but to translate it and make it available for all people. And so they went on this mad campaign to translate the Bible into as many languages as possible. So, as Luther said, the common plowboy could read the Bible and have access to it, because at that time, very few could read the scriptures for themselves. Well, I'm wondering today if you have a text plan. I'd like you to open your Bible to 2 Timothy, and uh, the verses that were read will be the focus that we have. Here's a passage that was written by Paul to Timothy to a very important church, the church at Ephesus. Paul had been involved in founding the church. We know more about this church than any other church in the New Testament. You read about it in Acts, you read about it in Ephesians, you read about it, really, uh, you get a glimmer of it in the letters to Timothy and the letters to, from John and then in Revelation again. So we know a lot about the church And we know that uh, Paul was concerned when he left the church and he said his goodbye to the elders in Acts 20. And he said, I got to warn you that 
The temptation to slip away is going to be very, very great. And so 2 Timothy is his last word to Timothy, to the church at Ephesus, and to the churches, to the world, really. He's about to be executed. It's the end of his, what I think was his um, uh, fourth missionary journey. He's back in prison in Rome. He's on trial for his life. And as we look at this passage, I want to, to focus on three things. I want us to focus first on the preeminence of the Scriptures, um, secondly, the challenge of the times that they experienced, and then thirdly, the charge to the Christian. So those are the three hooks I want you to just put your coat on for... Oh, you don't wear coats down here. Well, in this weather, you do wear coats, right? I love this cold weather. The preeminence of the Scripture. Now, I think it's interesting that in this passage, you have three names given to the Bible, really. One of them comes in chapter 4, verse 2. And the Bible is called the Word. And that name is an appeal to the uniqueness of the Bible. You know, where Paul says to Timothy, preach the Word. Preach the Word. And Christians have have called the Bible the Word of God. In fact, just let me back up for a second. If you have very little background to the Christian faith... Let me tell you some just basics of the Christian faith. The Christians have have proclaimed for centuries that there is a God, that this God is so great that he can communicate with his creation, that he is a talking God. He doesn't play charades with the universe, but he communicates to them. He does this through creation, and supremely he does this through the Bible and through Jesus Christ. And so that's why Christians have felt that the Bible is a precious book because in it we can know God's mind. We can know what he's thinking. I don't know if you saw the movie earlier this year, The Book of Eli. Fascinating film about uh, our world after a nuclear holocaust. A very raw film, too, because it's a raw world when order breaks down. It's as raw as when Rome fell. Just uh, chaotic And it's a story about a a, a man named Eli, and and the Bible is missing. There are no Bibles left except for one. And Eli has the Bible. And so he he has it, and people want it. And what he does, he he reads it daily, and he, he memorizes it. And people are always trying to destroy it or to get it from him so that they can abuse it. But there's one line in the middle of the film where it says, a guy says, he says, This is not just any book. This is the only book. It is so significant, and as the movie goes on, you get the sense that this is the book that sheds God's light on the world, that that brings sense to humanity and sanity to humanity. So one of the names here for the Bible is the Word. A second name in this passage uh, for the Bible, you'll find it in chapter 3, verse 15, and it's referred to as the Holy Writings, or the NIV puts it, the Holy Scriptures. And that speaks to the fact that the Bible is, it's different. It's set apart. It's, it's distinct. Well, how, it's, how is it distinct? Well, then it speaks of his purpose right in that verse. One purpose, there are two important purposes of the Bible. One is it's able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's its first great purpose. In fact, many have said that's the theme of the whole Bible. That's what holds all those books together. Salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The whole book points towards a person, Christ. And the grace of God in that person, the salvation that's offered in his name. In fact, Luther said, the Bible is a cradle for Christ. And the Old Testament shouts, he's coming. And the New Testament shouts, he's here. It just 
brings forward, exalts Jesus Christ. That's one of the great purposes, the great purpose of the Bible. But then a second one follows, and you see it in verse 16. Not only that, but the scriptures are, are useful. Useful for what? Useful for, for living, let alone Christian living. Useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. That the man of God... Now, in the first instance, that is spoken of, that's spoken to Timothy... Timothy was the man of God that Paul had in mind. But the Greek there is anthropos, and so it's a generic, wider sense. And also believers, that every believer, male or female, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we see that the Bible is is not just God's word, but it's God's holy, set-apart writings for a very, very important purpose. And then there's a third name that's used here to describe uh, what this is, the preeminence of the word. And uh, it's the God-breathed writings. And you see that in verse 16. Um, All Scripture is God-breathed. Graphe theopanustas. Translated by most translations, this is inspired. Now, that helps in some ways. You know what an inspired book or an inspired song are. It revs you up. It gets you excited. But there's more here than that. Uh, these are God-breathed writings. The, the sense of it is God breathed them out. That is, they find their origin in the living God, or they are God-expired. God gave them out. They come from Him. Um, he doesn't explain exactly how that works in this particular passage, except to say they're so important because their origin is from God, and that's where the power of the Bible derives from. It's more than just humanly inspired. All Scripture is uniquely God-breathed, expired by Him. It comes from Him. It is for you. And so know that when you handle the Word, when you think about the Bible. It is the Word, the holy writings, the God-breathed writings. And that's why the Bible is so unique. And we spend a lot of time talking about it. But let me tell you a little bit about the challenge. Secondly, the challenge of the times. The challenge that they experienced. Remember, they lived in challenging times just like we do. And all through 2 Timothy, you'll find the little two Greek words, sude, which means but you. And it's Paul's way of saying to Timothy, look, Timothy, the times are crazy that you're living in. But you, keep your head. But you, this is how you're to think. But you, in these crazy times, this is how you need to live. And you'll see that in chapter 2, verse 1. You'll see that in chapter 3, verse 10. And chapter 4, verse 5. But you, distinguishing yourself from the crazy times and those who have walked away from God's word, Timothy, you've got you've to you've be different. Now, if you want to know how crazy the times were, read chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, and Paul describes it. But let me summarize what he says. There are two big characteristics of the crazy times that he lived in. One is that they were times characterized where people were just obsessed with themselves. They were, in other words, narcissistic. You know that word? Many don't know that word. Narcissism, have you heard that? It really comes from a figure in Greek mythology. Ovid writes about him. And uh, it's, it's a young hunter who is renowned for his good looks, just enamored with himself and exceptionally proud. Uh, Narcissus was like Ken in Toy Story 3, to just get, you know, remember? You know, he's just looking in the mirror and he's enamored with himself. And Narcissus uh, was so enamored with his good looks, so obsessed with himself, that he saw his reflection in a pond 
And he looked at it, and he spent the rest of his life wasting away, wasting himself to death, just looking at his reflection. He was in love with himself. And Paul says to Timothy, that's the ethos of your age. That's the challenge before you. That's the pull of your age. People will be lovers of themselves, arrogant, abusive, swollen with conceit. It's an extremely self-obsessed age. But you, Timothy, let the word pull you in another direction. That is much better than that. Okay, the other characteristic of his age, the other challenge of his time was, was this. It was a relativistic age. That might surprise you. Chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. He says, one of the characteristics of this age is they're always learning, but they're never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. In fact, people oppose the truth. They oppose the idea of truth. But you, Timothy, would you please keep your head in this situation and, and don't Leave the Word because your generation desperately needs the Word of God. People are desperate for the Creator's Word. Churches need to, like Ephesus, you need to proclaim and live out the Word of God. Timothy, you need to proclaim and live out the Word of God. This is not a time to slip, Timothy. Now, you hear that about their culture, and I don't know about you, but I think about our culture. Man, that sounds like us. Not only that, you have... uh, just the, the challenge of technology. We live in a self-obsessed age. Yes, we're, we live in a very relativistic age, but we have this thing called technology. I love technology. I uh, prepared my sermon on a, on a laptop, and I love my laptop. I really do. I wrote a book before I had a computer, and I much prefer computers. So I love technology. But we don't often speak about the challenges of technology. We live, as some have said, in an info-glut culture where information is overloading all of our circuits. You know what I'm talking about. There are new words being invented uh, because we get so many messages, text messages, emails, um, uh, advertisements, uh, books, tweets, um, you name it. Uh, People speak now of data exhaust and um, uh, digital garbage and data smog because there's so much information out there. And we get all this stuff coming at us, and in the wealth of information, we tend to lose what is really, really important. That's one of the great challenges of living in the digital age. In fact, if you think about it, think of texting for a moment. Texting has just gone crazy in the United States. People text more than they make phone calls now. We've just crossed that threshold. Uh, I read recently that for teens, one in three teens teens sends over 100 text messages a day. I don't know if I can even answer 100 emails a day, let alone 100 text messages, but that's right. Now, this is kind of interesting. I don't know how to read this. Boys typically send and receive 30 texts a day. Girls typically send and receive 80 messages a day. I don't know what that means. I'm not going to comment on it. I, you know, just, wow. Um, but... Um, and then this little article went on to say 72 of Americans now have text plans. They have text plans. You know, you go in a store and you say, I want a phone, but I want this feature. And you've got to show me how it works. So sign me up. I'll pay it. And we have text plans. And what happens with all this stuff coming at us is that, that we, we get so many text messages and messages that we tend to lose the essential message that God has given to the earth through His Word. And we're in danger of losing it. And so I want to ask you today, do you you have a text plan? Do you have a text plan? 
We see the preeminence of the Scriptures and the challenge of the time. So let me take you to this third part of our passage. That, that is the charge to the disciple or the charge to the Christian. The charge to Timothy. Chapter 3, verse 14. It's, but you, Timothy, and the word is remain. Remain. Remain where? Remain Remain in the Word. Remain in the Scriptures. Because why? Well, because, Timothy, you see, you've been grounded in them since you were a little bitty boy. And your mother and your grandmother introduced the Scriptures to you in your infancy. You had that great privilege. But you're not safe. It's easy to drift away from it. And so, Timothy, but you, Timothy, verse 14, you remain in these things. Continue in what you have learned. Um, Continue. Don't drift away. Now, I believe, friends, this is not just God's word to Timothy long ago far away. This is God's word to you today, whatever age you are, especially if you have the ability to text. This is God's word to you. Remain in the text of texts. Don't lose it in in an age where all this other stuff is flying at us, however much we might enjoy pressing our thumbs on the buttons and and communicating with, with our friends. Do you have a text plan? I want to close by just suggesting a text plan for you. I want you to just imagine that you've, your, your phone contract is up. And you go to a Verizon store, and I am your clerk. And you want a new plan. And um, I'm telling you about this text that God has given, and here's the plan. I think the text plan I'd like to commend to you today, in fact, involves five things. Number one, for this text plan that really, really matters, number one, revere the Word. Revere the Word. Revere God's text. You know, we call it, we used to call it actually, the Holy Bible. You don't hear Christians speak like that anymore. You hear Muslims speak about the Holy Quran, but Christians don't talk about the Holy Bible. But in a previous age, they revered this book. They didn't throw it around. They didn't take it for granted. They revered it. Not because, not because it's the end focus of our lives. Christ should be, but, but it's, a, it's a holy book that God has given to us, revere it. If you read the preface of the new ESV study Bible, it begins this way. I love this. This book is the most valuable thing that the world affords. Here is wisdom. This book, this word is an inestimable treasure that is being put into your hands. Do you think of it like that? That's what God has given us, this inestimable treasure of a text. So my text plan first says, revere it. Reconsider your view of Scripture. Come back to God's view of it. Secondly, it's read it. My word, read the text. I mean, this is needed in our churches, let alone in our families and among individuals. Read it so that it shapes your understanding. One of the benefits of reading through the Bible is it washes over you and it challenges all your, your, your thoughts. It's good for it. God does His work when you immerse your mind in it. And whether you take it in through, through reading the Bible in a year or deep Bible study or praying the Scripture or Lectio Divino or memorizing it or, or sitting under the preaching of it, just read it. Don't ignore the text. God gave it to you so you could take it into you. Okay, so that's the second part of my text plan. Do you read his text? Do you? Third part is this. Think along the Bible. So you revere it, you read it, you think along the Bible. You know, you, you know this, is, this is the ultimate story that God gives to the world. 
And uh, when, when thinking about stuff, you've you got to always ask yourself, if you're truly a Christ follower, you have to ask yourself, well, what does the Bible say about that? You know, what does God think about that? Uh, not what do I think about it or what does even the professor down the road think about it, but what, what does God think about it? And bring the stories that you encounter in this world, let alone your own story, and bring them to the Bible and think about those stories along the Bible. Let God's story shape the way you think about all the other stories. Now, let's think of 2010. We've had lots of stories come at us. Beginning of the year, Avatar came at us. A movie that they spent more money on that than any other movie in the history of film. It's gone out, even though it didn't get the big award, it's had more influence than any other film in the history of film, and it promotes a very worship-the-earth kind of uh, paganism. And when you watch that, did you think along the Bible as you saw those images and saw where the message was going? Did you think God's thoughts about the message? Or what about uh, the, the, the earthquake in Haiti? Or what about um, the, the miners in Chile? Or what about... Um, you know, the, uh, recently the Prime Minister of Germany came out and she said, multiculturalism doesn't work. It's failing. The, the multicultural dream is dead. When I read that, I immediately thought, now what does Scripture say about that? Sure, it's dead if you don't have Christ. But if you have Christ, there are whole new possibilities. You know? Uh, when you think about the election, did you think along the Bible about all the trust we put in this candidate or that candidate? Did you think God's thoughts after him? So my text plan that I commend to you would, be, would involve revering the scriptures, reading the scriptures, and thinking along the scriptures. And then let me take you two steps further as we close. The fourth part, you know, the fourth paragraph. And by the way, in the text plan at Verizon, there are like a hundred paragraphs, right? And the print's really small. Mine, mine are short, they're few, and the print's really large. So hang with me here. But the fourth part of the text plan that I commend to you today is to live by it. That is, don't just take it in, but by God's Spirit, be doers of the Word and not hearers only. You know, uh, we were taught when we went through seminary that Christ rules the believer because Christ is the King, right? How does He rule the believer? The answer is by His Word. Christ rules the church, we were taught in seminary. How? Because he's king, remember? And we're under his kingship. We call him Lord. How? By his word. That's how, that's how he rules. And so um, he has the right as the Lord to define what we should believe and how we should live. I mean, if you're really a follower of Jesus, friend, you've got to follow his lead and uh, live by the word. But let me take you one more step to the final paragraph of this, this uh, text contract that I'm putting before you today. And, and that is this. Not only um, revere it and read it and think along it and live by it. And probably most important of all, um, when you take God's text in your hands, meet God in it. Meet him there. This, this text is, is different the reason it's so special is that it is a divine meeting place. It's not simply a place to learn about God. It's a place to meet God. It's like the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Remember what they called it? They called it the meeting place. 
It's like the temple in the Old, Old Testament. It's a tent of meeting. It's a place where you can come and hear God speak by His Spirit in powerful, powerful ways. And there is no other book like it in the world. And friends, that is why we talk about sola scriptura. Can you say that with me? Sola scriptura. Scripture alone. It's just God's wonderful, unique book. When Luther was at the end of his life, you know what they found? They found a little scrap of paper at the, at the desk beside the bed right before he died. And the note that found on the table, it, uh, it just said that the word of God is precious. And Luther appealed to his followers to read it with humility, but to read it, read it, read it. Great words coming from a great reformer who gave his life to study the scriptures. Great words from Paul to Timothy and a church long ago. Great words for Orangewood Presbyterian Church and the Church of Christ today in 2010. May God bless you as a church under his word. Would you pray with me? Just take a moment of silence to examine your own heart towards God's word. You know, even if you're completely skeptical about this book, go ahead, read it. And say, God, if you're real, show yourself to me in this book. Maybe you can confess that you've just been enamored with other texts and you've set his text aside. Go ahead, confess that. Or maybe you've been approaching the Bible sort of woodenly and you've just been approaching it without looking for Christ and wanting to meet Him there. Maybe you need to confess that you've not been pursuing Jesus as you've read the Bible. Lord, wherever we're coming from today, we thank You that You are a God who talks and speaks and You have, by Your grace, drawn near to this speck of a planet and You've communicated to us Your life-giving Word in the scriptures and in Christ. And we bless your name for this precious, wonderful gift. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.